This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Rianne Campbell from Stories of Win, and today I am interviewing Dr. Autumn Ivey. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine, and she's also an attending pediatric neurologist at both the University of California Irvine Medical Center and Children's Hospital Orange County in the Division of Neurology. And her lab studies how early life exercise can influence the development of cognitive functions using mouse models. And so I want to thank you for joining me today, Dr. Ivy. Thank you so much, Rianne, for asking me to be here. I'm really excited to do this interview. Great. Um, so yeah, let's just get started. I'd love to hear, you know, how um, you first got interest in neuroscience and what kind of drew you to research. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first, it's just really exciting to um, be a part of the stories of when, oh my gosh, um, I love hearing the other stories too. So to, to share mine is a lot of fun. So um, how I got started. So um, I guess I can give this in the context of kind of my background, where I grew up and what took me to um, neuroscience research to begin with. So um, I'm born and raised in Southern California, actually in Inglewood, California. And um, I went to undergraduate at Cal State LA, which is a Cal State um, school. It's, you know, 20 some odd Cal States in the state of California. And they're affordable undergraduate institutions. And um, at first, I did not want to go there, um, but I got a scholarship to go there and actually um, do research and get a small stipend to complement, you know, doing research while I studied, you know, sciences as an undergrad. And I chose general biology as a major. And so, um, you know, my mother was like, what an opportunity. Oh, my gosh you're going here, you know, these other institutions, we're going to have to take out big loans, but, you know, why not go where you're actually going to be supported, um, which yeah. was um, a decision that was great for me, but at the time I didn't have the insight until I um, <laughs> started um, during my sophomore year, I started uh, working in the research lab of Dr. Emilia Russo-Neustadt, um, who's still there at Cal State LA. Hmm. She is a physician scientist as well. She's a geriatric psychiatrist. Interest. And her lab was just getting started. And so I was one of the first people to actually enter her lab and the only undergraduate. She had a couple of master's students um, and some technicians. Um, so this was a prime opportunity to actually um, um, you know, work on a project and maybe even take ownership of it um, because the lab was so new. And so wow. her research, yeah. And so her research <laughs> focus was um, looking at exercise. So she was studying exercise. Wow. Um, um, but exercise in the aging brain. And specifically, um, she was interested in understanding how antidepressants um, and, you know, through their various mechanisms of action, either tricyclics or SNRIs or SSRIs can um, act synergistically with the mechanisms of exercise to influence BDNF expression mm -hmm. in the hippocampus and other brain regions. Um, cool. And this was particularly focused on the aging brain. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, I have so many questions from that alone. Yeah. Um, 
how was that um, lab, I guess, kind of selected? Was it based off of the program that were, you were in or is yeah. right you study exercise? Like what a big influence. Right, <laughs> right. Um, it was, it was serendipity, um, meeting preparation, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, I was, um, you know, I was looking for a lab. Um, I started out in another woman's lab, Dr. Brotherly Krillowitz, and she was studying epilepsy, but she was about to retire. And so, um, you know, it just so happened that I was, you know, going to exit her lab after my freshman year. Um, and uh, Dr. Russo Neustadt was coming into the institution as a new faculty. So it, it just was timing. It was just wow. timing. Um, and wow. so, and, you know, she was just such a great mentor and woman neuroscientist and great influence. And so once I got in her lab and, um, you know, uh, became really interested in these projects um, and they had a, you know, a personal kind of um, impact for me as well. I did um, have a grandmother that suffered from dementia and she was one of the people who helped raise me. Um, also a godmother with multiple sclerosis. So neurologic disease was something that I was always kind of interested in. And yeah. so that was another reason why I, you know, um, uh, was driven toward Dr. Russo Neustadt's lab. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I studied exercise there. And I think that really, you know, left, uh, you know, uh, indelible mark on my research interests. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, right. And she was also, or is also a physician scientist. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I guess, did you already see from an undergrad, like that's the path you wanted, or like, it was kind mm. of like, you're watching someone that you're like, Oh, right. maybe I will follow this. Or was it already going in since you knew you applied for an undergraduate, yeah. um, you know, support that had research in mind, yes. I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, right. I, you know, um, going into undergraduate, I, I was interested in the sciences and um, neurosciences specifically, but I just didn't know if that's what I really wanted to do with my life. But, what, yeah. you know, see, working with Dr. Russo Neustadt, um, modeling how you can actually bridge what you're thinking about and treating patients with in the clinic with what you're doing in the lab and thinking about it translationally, having a that type of lens of coupling physical activity with a treatment that she already uses for her patients. Yeah. Um, I thought that was brilliant um, in, a, in a wonderful way to bridge kind of this preclinical work um, with what she's actually doing with patient care. Um, and so when I first started in her lab, I was so um, invested in the sciences and the work and I was able to get my own project off the ground and um, was able to publish while there. So I was initially um, just geared toward applying to PhD programs. Mm -hmm. And she was the one who said, well, Autumn, have you considered MD-PhD programs? And I didn't seriously consider them because I honestly felt like I wouldn't be competitive. Um, so she was the one who really encouraged me to pursue them. That's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. So she, you know, it, it really was the mentorship and really the sponsorship too from her that um, got me set on this trajectory. Cool. Yeah. So, so how did you select what programs you wanted to like, yeah. or is it always I'm staying in exercise or yeah. how did that go? Right. Yeah. So um, while in her lab, I did um, determine for myself that although I was very interested in the aging brain, I was interested in aging more generally, um, yeah. whether it's later in life or early in life. And um, also um, as a kind of young investigator, reading a lot of research and seeing where the disparities were in the research emphasis, mm -hmm. you know, certainly early life uh, development and how we can influence it through exogenous experiences was understudied at that time. I would argue still, you know, isn't as 
well studied or funded compared to the adult or aging brain. And so when I was in her lab, I think I found for myself that, you know, I would like to um, pursue science that actually focuses on early life development. Um, And I, I think folks kind of veer away from it because it is hard to study. Like you have this added layer of development on top of exogenous experiences and on top of genetics um, and, you know, um, phenotype that genotype informing phenotype. So all of these added layers increases complexity. And so I think folks can veer away from it just to take that added layer of development off (laughs) because the the systems are as complex as they are already without that component. So, um, so I um, was excited about that challenge. And so I think in undergrad, that's when I identified, you know what, when I, matriculate into graduate school, I'd like to focus on the developing brain. And so that's, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so uh, how did you kind of select then uh, the graduate school that you would go to? Yeah, yeah. So um, after applying for MD, PhD programs, and um, you apply for a lot of them, because they're very competitive. <laughs> yeah. You're on this whole interview trail. Each interview is a couple days long. It's it's more than just the MD process alone or the, the PhD process yeah. alone. Um, but you know, I was very excited about the possibility of actually having a stipend to learn and do research and also go to medical school. So that's the nice thing about most of these medical scientist training programs is that you are supported throughout the eight to 10 years that yeah. you are a part of the program. Um, <laughs> so it attracts folks who wouldn't otherwise consider that length of a program because of the amount of debt that you could come out with yeah. on the other side, right? And so I will say, in all honesty, that was one consideration, like, wow, I, you mean I actually get paid to be a medical student and also do this cool science, sign me up. Whereas others are like, what, eight to 10 years? That is <laughs> that is ridiculous. What are you doing? So, but I was very excited about that possibility. So long story short, I, um, yeah, I was, I was um, selected by UC Irvine and a couple of other institutions, but chose UC Irvine to um, complete the medical scientist training program. Cool. And um, I, yeah, I chose it because there were some scientists, well, the neurosciences here are very strong. They were back then and mm-hmm. they are now. Um, there were a few scientists I was interested in working with. Um, and it was fairly close to home. And it was important yeah. to me to be you know, close to my own community and be close to home um, when I'm signing up for such a long period of my life, my 20s. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. I, I chose you know, with neuroscience research in mind yeah. also, but yeah. proximity to family was yes. also a factor in my decision. For it's sure, like we are sure. humans. So we have to Absolutely. have our relationships in mind too, to extent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, so important. I think it was crucial for my um, thriving during the program. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. So, um, so I know, uh, you know, what lab you ended up studying in, but where did yeah. you do your PhD work in at UCI? Yeah, so um, I ended up selecting the lab of Dr. Tally Barham, um, who's also a child neurologist, physician scientist, but, um, you know, has really um, created a research legacy um, in multiple aspects of translational, you know, um, uh, developmental neurobiology, as well as in um, 
pediatric neurology. Um, she's done work, um, that seminal work that has really um, informed how we care for pediatric neurological patients, um, specifically mm -hmm. in infantile spasms, which is a, you know, devastating um, epilepsy condition in infancy, um, for which, uh, you know, we have to treat early and treat aggressively in order to improve outcomes for patients. So Dr. Barham's early work informed that the way we treat those patients now, which is incredible. Yeah. And in addition to that, you know, her lab also is interested in early life experiences and um, um, and the neurobiology of those and how they can impact um, and inform long-term um, developments and function of various brain regions and circuits. And so um, in her lab, I took up a project uh, focused on early life chronic stress. Um, and uh, this project was um, using a model, which at the time was um, kind of only used by her lab, maybe one other, now it's used pretty broadly, um, where we created a cage environment for rodents during the first week of life in which they had limited access to bedding and nesting material. Um, and this paradigm is actually quite effective in creating chronic stress in the offspring um, because the mother or the, you know, the rat or mouse dam um, doesn't have sufficient nesting material to um, provide an adequate nest for her pups. This stresses her, um, causes her to have erratic, fragmented care towards the pups, um, um, which then, you know, uh, you know, causes kind of this unpredictable nature in the um, parents offspring interaction. And it's that unpredictable nature come to find out, you know, in kind of the more recent work that has come out of her lab and others, it's the unpredictable nature of that model that really seems to be um, at the crux of the stress that's conferred on the pups. So mm -hmm. I use that model in rats when I was a graduate student. And the, the question we were asking was, well, you know, can this a discrete period of chronic early life stress during the first postnatal week actually have a long-term impact on cognitive function. Um, we know that chronic stress in humans, early life adversity, ACE exposure can have so many different uh, effects systemically, but also on the brain and on cognition and cognition particularly associated with aging. And so the question we were asking was, well, what, what could be the neurobiological basis of this? And that was the crux of my PhD work was kind of dissecting those mechanisms. Cool. So how did you kind of go about um, examining cognitive function? Yeah, yeah. So we focused on the hippocampus um, um, primarily um, with regard to kind of our behavioral and molecular readouts for the study. And so we um, had these offspring who underwent the early life adversity um, grow to adulthood or, you know, middle age. And we tested them in a battery of um, tasks that, you know, interrogated hippocampal function. Um, some of the common ones that we use include Morris water maze and object location and recognition memory. We also did tests of anxiety, the kind of these common behavioral tests that we use um, in behavioral neuroscience um, that focus, that we know involve hippocampus and require hippocampus in some instances. And so, um, uh, you know, what we found was that um, these early life adversity exposed rodents um, had impairments in long-term um, memory that was um, served by the hippocampus that required hippocampal uh, function um, and by way of their performance in Morris water maze and object recognition memory. However, this deficit or this impairment in behavior did not seem to be apparent until these animals were 12 months old or older. 
Wow. So it seemed to be that maybe we had this phenotype of accelerating the aging process or the age-related cognitive decline that you would otherwise see. Maybe this was accelerated because of the early stress exposure. And mm-hmm. so that was the behavioral phenotype that we characterized in the paper. Um, we also were able to collaborate with some other groups here at UC Irvine uh, that do electrophysiology, um, Dr. Christine Gall and Gary Lynch, um, and the electrophysiologists in their lab, and found that in addition to having these behavioral impairments, we also saw impairments in long-term potentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, in these aged mice, or it was rats that we used, sorry. Um, And so we found behavioral deficits, synaptic deficits in the form of, you know, um, synaptic plasticity being impaired. Um, And we also found that um, corticotropin-releasing hormone, which is a hormone that usually um, is kind of the uh, initial hormone released in the whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, released by the hypothalamus to signal the body's uh, response to stress, start that whole signaling cascade. But there are also receptors for this corticotropin-releasing hormone in hippocampus. And part of that stress signaling cascade actually involves CRH signaling within hippocampus. So part of the question I asked with the study was, well, if we block um, CRH signaling in hippocampus or in the brain, um, you know, uh, but we focused um, mostly on hippocampus. If we block the CRH signaling, can we mitigate some of these long-term sequelae of the early life adversity? So we designed the experiment where we blocked CRH signaling immediately after the stress occurred. So mm-hmm. it was during kind of the second into third week of life for these rodents. And how did then, you, sorry, yeah. how did you um, yeah. block, I guess, the, right, the CRH? <laughs> right, right. So um, they're was, so young. Um, they are. Yeah. And yeah, so um, we had to get creative. But what we did, and you know, this was as specific as we could do, but we yeah. did um, intracerebroventricular implantations of um, very tiny cannula on postnatal day 10. Um, wow. And that cannula was connected to a catheter, which was then connected to a little backpack, like a like an osmotic pump backpack that was inserted under the skin of the rodent. Wow. And that osmotic <laughs> pump would um, continually infuse this CRH receptor antagonist for about a week or so. Um, and so we were continually infusing that antagonist a week after the animals were exposed to the stress. Um, And we were able to demonstrate that we did block these receptors and, you know, um, in the regions of interest. And so we were able to also, long story short, show that that we could mitigate some of the, not all, but some of the long-term consequences of early life adversity by altering the CRH signaling after stress. So um, during early life. So that was was the crux of my PhD work in Tally's lab. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, That's so cool to think about, I guess. Um, I'm kind of thinking of influences of potentially other stressors or like other Mm -hmm. external stimuli, like um, Mm -hmm. drug use of like the mothers or something impacting, um, you know, their development and their ability to have any kind of, I guess, cognitive functions. I wonder if, um, you know, there's similar mechanisms, I guess, with all these different types of uh, external insults. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we create this this simulated environment of kind of resource lacking, right? You know, yeah. the mom, the dam has a lack of resources and is unable to, you know, create the, you know, optimal nest and, you know, environment for the pups. But I, one could imagine that, you know, in the setting of, you know, um, 
you know, addiction or um, the maternal care being um, um, altered in other types of ways, yeah. you know, um, through other kind of maternal behaviors um, could potentially confer the same type of chronic stress um, by way of altering the care that the mother gives toward the pups. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think the implications, to your point, the implications of, of using a rodent model of early life stress where it's kind of dependent on the parental caregiving yeah. Um, is one that I think was very intentional um, in the Barron lab when it was first developed um, because other models of chronic stress um, in which you just separate the mom altogether yeah. for extended periods of time, um, you know, have their benefits as well, but it, it's different, right? You know, you have, yeah. you know, a, a discrete period of in which the mom is taken away and then is brought back. And so her maternal care is probably altered when she's brought back, yeah. uh, but it, it may even be a little bit more predictable Predictable if it's yeah. happening at the same time in that particular type of uh, design. So, you know, there are various ways yeah. to um, study maternal care related stress. Um, but I, I think that, you know, it was intentional for us to, you know, alter maternal care. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I guess just as you're saying parenting, but right, it's focusing on maternal care. Um, does... I don't actually know like how, uh, how the father kind of plays a role in early development, yeah. I guess, or I don't know. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And so, um, you know, and that's why, you know, I said parental care. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, you know, the way that we set up these, uh, you know, very controlled experiments using rodents, um, oftentimes we're using the mom and the pups and studying that interaction because the pups are reliant on the other for, you know, feeding and all of this. And so um, I am less familiar with the studies looking at paternal care, it kind of in rodents. Yeah. But I'm sure that I'm sure that those exist. And yeah, I, yeah I'm, I'm also curious how, you know, um, you know, those interactions may also influence, you know, the yeah. outcome of the pups, um, because, you know, it is artificial, right, when we are having this environment where we remove the the dad right you yep. know we just have the maternal you know offspring interaction that we're studying so yeah. right right so yeah it's interesting yeah. yeah exactly right there's so many yeah. factors of like how right. these early life insults are going to be affecting individuals so it's kind yeah. of interesting to think about um yeah, cool so sure. so you kind of focused in on right crh and you found this kind of right impact um, on kind of fragmented maternal care, um, yes. causing these deficits in cognition. Um, yeah. And so from there, I guess, I mean, right, you had, so you finished your dissertation. Right. <laughs> and from there, you returned to medical school. Yes. And yes, what is, exactly. what was that? what was that transition i guess returning back and then when yeah. you had to then make your decision of your postdoc i guess how did you kind yeah. of decide where to turn to after two years of you know not being in the lab right. i guess yeah that's a great question and so the way that traditional medical scientist training programs are set up is that and the way that i did it was that you do your two years of you know medical school like the classroom years um as soon as you start years one and two. And then after that is when you go into the lab. So that's what I did. And then you do, uh, you know, four and five, six year PhD. Once you finish that, then you cap your whole MSTP training with the final two years of medical school, which are your clinical years. And so that's exactly what I did. And so um, that was a challenging time mm -hmm. going from, you know, finishing the PhD and thinking very much 
uh, as a PhD scientist thinks, where we, you know, tackle a very specific question, we go deep with that question, and we come, the, we become the expert on that thing. Um, to now going shifting back to medical school and going into the wards where you're seeing patients in different, you know, subspecialties in medicine from psychiatry to surgery to neurology to internal medicine. Um, there was a huge shift in how you learn and um, um, acquire information that you need to use. Um, and so I did struggle with that when I transitioned back. That was very hard. I, I had to learn how I had to relearn how to study for medical school yeah. and specifically for the wards. And so um, and I don't think I'm alone in that. You know, it's it's a tough transition, um, but we made it through the transition. And so um, <laughs> during that time, we made it through. And that, that's the success. Um, yeah. But I will say that, um, you know, uh, it was it was fun ultimately to get back into thinking about clinical medicine, but having this new lens of as I encountered patients and clinical problems for which we didn't have a, a good answer or we didn't have a full understanding of the pathology or um, how to best approach treatment, um, my ability to think critically about those problems, to go to the literature, to um, uh, bring, a, you know, basic biological perspective to those problems um, was something that I think served me well during those final two years of medical school and I think is true for MSTP students. And that's the whole goal of the program, right? And so, mm -hmm. so yeah, so those final two years um, was fun in that it, it reinforced for me that, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to have this basic neurobiology lens um, on the, you know, patient cases that I see in order to improve quality of life and the specialty that I choose. So the decision tree at that point then becomes, well, do you do a formal postdoc or do you do a residency? Do you do both? Oh my gosh, life is also happening and I'm getting older too. <laughs> so yeah. it's a lot to consider. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, I chose that because I, you know, went through, you know, four years of medical school, I wanted to become a licensed practicing physician. I ended up choosing a residency and fellowship kind of combined program oh. in child neurology. Um, wow. And so I did my pediatrics and child neurology training at Stanford and mm -hmm. Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, um, which was a great place to do it. And so, um, you know, residency, you're working 80 hours a week, quote unquote, and um, <laughs> um, on average over the month. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, during that time, I also wanted to, you know, find some postdoc experience. And so, mm -hmm. Part of my selection of Stanford, and you know, it's it's a match process, so they selected me also. Um, you, I, I, I ranked them highly and wanted to go there or places that had um, built-in research protected time for residents, mm -hmm. and so that was a really important thing for me to find. And so I found that there and ended up working in the lab of Tony Weiss Corey during my child neurology years. And so I can um, talk a little bit about kind of what I did in his lab. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, and it was interesting because um, when you're a resident and you, you know, you're there just, you know, learning how to take care of patients and become a licensed physician. Right. Um, and, you know, learn your specialty, which was child neurology. Um, juggling that with also working in a lab was really hard. 
I'm sure. And I also, yeah, it was incredibly hard because it was a lot of, you know, um, in addition to having like, there were nine months of protected research time where I wasn't on call, where I didn't have to see patients and I was able to focus solely on the research, but also, um, you know, what can you do in my nine months? Yeah. And I found yeah. that when I went back, a lot of my skills were outdated because this was mm. five years from when I graduated from my PhD. Mm. So when I went into his lab, so I then had to, you know, um, decide, okay, what do I want? What skills do I want to take from this experience? And so I decided that, you know, I want to learn RNA sequencing, which, you know, that yeah. was big then in 2014 <laughs> and 2015, you know, learning how to sequence and also learn yeah. a bit of R and coding so you can analyze your results. So, um, while in his lab, I had a project that was focused on, um, an animal model of a pediatric leukodystrophy, white matter disorder called metachromatic leukodystrophy. And my goal was to um, characterize abnormalities in microglia um, uh, and uh, abnormal inflammation that occurs in this um, white matter disorder, this demyelinating and dysmyelinating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so I was learning how to um, use fluorescence activated cell sorting to get my cell populations of interest for this mouse model, sequence from my cell type of interest, and then be able to analyze that data using RNA-seq. And mm -hmm. so I was able to, even though in nine months, to be able to, that's an entire project that's going to take somebody's <laughs> PhD, right? And so it's <laughs> like, well, I'll at least kind of learn some of these skills. Um, and if I decide to stay in his lab after I'm done with res residency, I can continue on with this project. And so, um, yeah, and so I also, so I was able to learn those skills and they were invaluable for what I do now in my own lab. Yeah. Um, but um, the, the moral of that particular experience was that with that skill set, I could then take it and take it in the direction I wanted to go after residency and into right. my actual first faculty job. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. So why, I guess, um, for that project by microglia, when you're saying a yeah. demyelinating right, disease? <clears throat> yeah, right. And so, um, you know, in um, pediatric kind of demyelinating disorders and metachromatic leukodystrophy is the disorder that we chose, um, you know, um, there is um, a hypothesis that you could um, have continued kind of neuronal injury and dysfunction and continued dysmyelination um, due to abnormal activation of microglial function, okay. microglia, microglial function and secreted factors. And um, so that was the working hypothesis at the time. And, um, you know, we know that, you know, um, we can kind of slow down progression of certain types of, you know, um, dysmyelination or demyelination disorders by, you know, immunomodulatory therapy or reducing immune reactivity. Um, but, um, you know, our actual understanding of how, you know, microglia and other non-neuronal um, uh, cell subtypes can um, influence this type of process. Like we know neurons are being injured. We know a demyelinating process is going on. It may involve those non-neuronal cell types, you know, um, 
maybe, you know, um, in the pathology of the dysmyelination or demyelination? Can we target, you know, the functioning of those microglia in order to slow down that dysmyelinating or demyelinating process? Mm -hmm. And that was the that was the thought behind that particular project. And so um, fortunately, when I was in that lab, I actually wrote um, an initial grant proposal um, on this project. Um, and it was to this program called the Child Neurologist Development Career Development Program, CNC DP, Child Neurologist Career Development Program or K-12 program. And the, these programs exist for different types of folks who are um, uh, either MD-PhD trained or physician scientists and want to transition back into a research career after a residency or fellowship. And so I was able to kind of use my preliminary data and skill set from that particular project to apply for and receive that award to then start my own career. Wow. So yeah. you kind of have this uh, good record of making sure you're always having a you know, financial support for your research. <laughs> it's, it's a so smart thing to learn. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and the thing awesome. about, yeah, and the thing about the career development awards, um, yeah. you know, through these NIH mechanisms, like this was a mechanism through the NINDS, um, was that they're investing in the investigator, in the person whose career is being developed, right? And so it's really, you know, yes, the science is important and it has to make sense. Um, but, uh, you know, really they're investing in you getting your career off the ground. And that's really what the K-12 award was for me, um, which is why I was able to then shift you know, once I, um, you know, kind of took my job at UCI, I was able to then shift from, oh, maybe I don't want to focus on demyelination anymore. Maybe I want to shift back to some of the things yeah. I was doing prior. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. is that how you kind of decided to go to UCI for your faculty position yes. where you started your lab? Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I was recruited back to UC Irvine um, and thought it would be a wonderful place to start my career because not only did I, you know, already kind of know some mentors here, um, mm -hmm. but uh, I also um, uh, saw the opportunity to actually bring exercise and early life experiences back into my research program. And that's because here at UC Irvine, there is actually um, uh, interest and funding support for um, um, pediatric exercise research kind of on the clinical end. So there's a whole pediatric okay. exercise research center here um, where they are um, funded by the NIH Common Fund. Um, um, and it's a specific study called the Motor Pack Study, Molecular Transducers of Physical Activity in Humans. And um, But there's a preclinical animal component to this too. And so the idea was um, for me to come down to UCI and start, you know, some of the preclinical early life exercise wow. work um, kind of in affiliation with this exercise center, mm -hmm. which is what I was able to do. And in addition to that, um, uh, because I was very interested in understanding basic neurobiological mechanisms and how an early life experience such as exercise can be represented in the genome um, or in cells, how is how is this experience represented in cells to then carry on and influence their function as a developing nervous system establishes itself and functions throughout the life of the animal? And so that um, also turned my attention toward epigenetic mechanisms and exercise. And that's how those two things kind of came together. And of course, there are expert 
neuroepigeneticists here at UCI. Um, and as a young faculty ment- member, I was looking for mentors in that space. Yeah. And so it just it just made sense. The right people were here to kind of get this type of work off the ground. Yeah, that's great. So what were kind of, I guess, the first things that you started doing in your lab to establish your research program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, um, the nice thing about K awards, whether it's a K99R00, a K12, a K08, a K23, those awards are meant for you to grow your expertise. Mm -hmm. And so what I did with my K award, the first thing I did is I said, you know what? I'm really interested in neuroepigenetics. I know very little about it. So I'm going to immerse myself in in this um, and kind of go out on a, you know, on a ledge, challenge myself and do something I haven't done before, which was, you know, immerse myself in this molecular neurobiology and, you know, molecular epigenetics. So I took a three week course at Cold Spring Harbor Labs, the, the Gen cool. X course or the chromatin gene expression course, which is a pretty rigorous course for three weeks. You're staying wow. at Cold Spring. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're living at Cold Spring Harbor. And you are from, you know, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night going to lectures in the morning on, you know, chromatin regulation, gene expression. You're running your experiments and chip and sequencing and, you know, um, uh, EMSA and all of these different um, types of experiments to, you know, analyze the epigenome from different directions, um, luciferase assays, all of that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was able to learn those skills in this very intensive three-week course. Now, mind you, I was the only assistant professor there. It was all <laughs> graduate students and postdocs. <laughs> <laughs> so that was also like, okay, I'm the oldest one here, but I'm going to ignore that. That's fine. Yeah. I want to learn this. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it was it was challenging, you know, like mm-hmm. I hadn't been in, an, in a rigorous environment like that where I was doing these type of experiments at yeah. the bench, you know, when I was, you know, kind of ping ponging back and forth between clinical medicine and basic neuroscience. And so um, I, I, I really loved um, that that program and really it was invaluable to the research program mm-hmm. that I built for my lab because it was there that I learned about um, this uh, trap method, um, translating ribosome affinity purification. And I also learned about, at that time, a fairly new transgenic mouse, reporter mouse called the new trap mouse, which cool. um, you know was something I was able to bring back to my lab. And so being the lesson that from that was being around a group of you know folks that are expert in thing that you, things that you have no experience in they're not neuroscientists i think i was the only neuroscientist in the room or mm-hmm. in the group um i was able to take tools and learn um skills um to then bring back to my lab um and you know establish a research program around just so so that experience was invaluable to the work that we're doing now yeah yeah that sounds like it's a great decision (laughs) great so you got all these skills and you knew potentially some of the techniques that you wanted to begin to start your lab and so um i guess what are some of the first projects that you then started up once kind of had those um, pieces that you needed to kind of build your puzzle right (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. It was pieces to a puzzle. And so <laughs> the first piece was establishing an early life exercise model, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, folks had been doing early life exercise research kind of in the exercise neurobiology field, but not so much, maybe one or two labs, um, you know, have been looking at exercise in the developing brain and rodents. And so I, you know, wanted to create a model and needed to because we wanted to start exercising mice as early as postnatal day 21, which is usually when we we take them out of the mother's cage and put them on their own. But we didn't want to wean animals into socially isolated cages. We wanted to group them together, but have a way to track their physical activity. And so we had to develop a model where we had an exercise wheel in the cage and we were able to put ear tags on the mice that had RFID tags attached to them. And, And we put an antenna underneath our running wheels and so we were able to track how much each mouse in the you know cage is running while keeping them group housed. So we were able to get wow. rid of that uh, social isolation stressor, um, which funny enough, I think better um, apparatuses exist now, but we had to kind of, um, you know, kind of jerry rig this, put this together ourselves <laughs> in order to get individual running data from our mice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that you made sure there was no social isolation, like a huge factor. Yeah. And really for the survival of these very tiny pups that are the size of your thumb, they're like six to nine grams. So we had to, yeah, we had to group house them (laughs) or at least pair house them. And so, um, and so that's what we did. And so the first step in the lab was to create this early life exercise paradigm and then characterize it. What is the phenotype of these mice undergoing early life exercise? Excuse me. So in collaboration with um, Marcella Woods Lab, who, you know, was a mentor of yours as well, um, uh, you know, expert neuroepigeneticist here, um, and also mentor on my K award. um, uh, I was able to work with an electrophysiologist in his lab to ask the question, well, are we um, facilitating the establishment of long term memory by exercising these mice during early life prior to uh, hippocampal memory task? And so the animals underwent exercise starting at postnatal day 21, and they exercised for either three weeks or one week because mm-hmm. we wanted to know, does duration matter? Mm-hmm. And then we had a control group, uh, exercise control group that started exercising later in adolescence mm-hmm. and asked the question, um, with these exercise groups, um, can they form memory faster or can we enable the formation of long-term memory? So they were um, challenged with the hippocampal memory task, object location memory, but we allowed them to acquire the task in a sub-threshold way, if you will, Mm -hmm. in a way that's usually um, uh, insufficient for them to form long-term memory. So they um, were able to, you know, acquire the task for three minutes, which usually isn't enough time for them to form long-term memory. And so we did this in exercise and sedentary conditions. And what we found was that those animals that started exercising specifically at P21, whether they exercised for three weeks or even one week, were able to form long-term memory in this typically sub-threshold learning situation of the three minutes of training. Yeah. Um, And we found um, an LTP correlate with this, namely the animals who exercised also had increased LTP in the shaper collateral pathway, of uh, 
axons going from CA3 to CA1. So that's where we did our LTP recordings um, and found that exercise animals had an increased LTP. We also found some changes in basal synaptic physiology, specifically at the postsynaptic side, um, all in the mice who ran starting at P21. So this suggested to us that, you know, we are potentially changing the formation of this circuit. Now, whether we interfered with the establishment of the circuit during this early life um, period um, in such a way that, you know, structurally things changed and then that became, you know, persistent or we uh, changed the um, chromatin accessibility or the molecular availability of gene expression such that genes are more readily available to support long-term memory um, was an open question. And so that was the next question we were asking. And that's when our new trap mouse model came in. So we, uh, yeah, we're able to use that new trap mouse model, which allows us to look at the epigenome um, after exercise. And so that, that was the next experiment that we, we did and recently published on, which is fun. Great. What were your findings in terms of, um, I guess, (laughs) altering the epigenome from this uh, early life exercise paradigm? Yeah. So um, in that study, we um, crossed new trap reporter mouse um, and the new trap stands for nuclear tagging. That's the new part. Um, And so we tag nuclei with either M. cherry or biotin so we can pull them apart and then trap translating ribosome affinity purification, that allowed us to tag the translating ribosomes with GFP. Mm-hmm. So we would cross this reporter mouse with, um, you know, a Cree mouse that had a gene, you know, that's expressed in the cell line of interest for us. And so mm-hmm. that cell line of interest, we started with neurons. And so we chose an EMX1 Cree mouse, crossed it with the new trap mouse, so that allowed us to then have offspring that express this new trap cassette in neurons in the brain regions of interest for this study it was the hippocampus. Um, and so we were able to isolate neurons from hippocampus from exercised EMX1 new trap transgenic mice um, and separate out the you know components that had the translating messenger RNA. So we could do RNA sequencing from that, or it's called TRAP-seq. And then we were also able to grab nuclei from that same homogenate in those same cells and sequence from those nuclei. And so we did that sequencing with with a method called cut and run seek. Basically, it allows us to look at the histone modifications um, on the, you know, DNA um, or actually on the histones that are, you know, housing under the DNA. And we can then couple this data. We could ask, okay, which new histone modifications are occupying regulatory regions of the genes that we see changed after exercise? Mm-hmm. And so that was a fun study, kind of descriptive, but we found we discovered a lot because we were able to look at two histone modifications. One that um, is a modification that marks kind of active transcribing sites, H4K8 acetylation. Mm-hmm. And we also looked at H3K27 trimethylation, which is usually a marker of, of um, heterochromatin or, you know, repression of gene expression or gene transcription. Um And so um, we were able to couple where, you know, in the genome we got enrichment or um, less enrichment of those two marks and which directionality the genes of interest um, um, went after exercise. And so we found, you know, quite a few um, memory and plasticity associated genes that had, you know, either more or less H4K8 acetylation or H3K27 trimethylation. We then had another component to the study where we asked the question, okay, 
So there are there are some genes that are changed with exercise alone, but there are a lot more genes that actually become involved and are necessary when the animal learns something new. And we know in our prior study that, you know, we enable long-term memory formation with this early life exercise. So what genes are involved in that? And does H4K acetylation or H3K27 trimethylation have anything to do with the regulation of those genes responsible for enabled memory after exercise? Mm-hmm. And so we were able to do that study and um, narrow down to about 70 plus genes wow. that seem to, yeah, so narrow down from thousands to yeah. 73-ish um, that, you know, seem to change their expression with ex- with early life exercise specifically um, and also have new regulation from these two histone modifications. And so that type of, um, this type of kind of, uh, a data-driven study allowed for us to form hypotheses around certain genome, epigenome interactions um, and uh, kind of explore those further in kind of subsequent studies that we're currently doing in the lab. Cool. That's really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I guess I was kind of curious in terms of, especially with like the behavioral findings, how that maps on to any of like of the clinical studies or even just, I guess, any kind of human research in general related to early life exercise. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for the initial start of my career, I definitely have delved deep into, you know, epigenetic mechanisms of um, exercise neurobiology. Um, And, um, you know, right now, it's seemingly kind of far removed from kind of clinical application. I do think that, you know, a couple of things that we're doing right now in the lab can actually inform how we think about patient care, um, particularly in the setting of neurological conditions. One, timing of exercise. When does exercise occur early in life and does it matter with regard to long-term outcomes with regard to cognition? This becomes important in pediatric neurology because we have a number of conditions that we see in clinic daily and I still see in clinic where, you know, a common comorbidity is cognitive dysfunction in childhood with epilepsies, with you know neuromuscular disorders, with autism and ADHD. Um, mm-hmm. We see the the full gamut, and we see that you know cognition, you know, and learning and memory can be compromised in these settings. So do, do timing does the timing of exercise during certain periods of early life actually impact the outcomes, the cognitive outcomes in those particular disorders? So mm-hmm. what we're doing preclinically in the lab in thinking about timing of exercise could potentially map onto how we time exercise in our neurology patients who are vulnerable to cognitive dysfunction in childhood. Um, And, you know, uh, there are also um, mouse models of various human disorders. I mean, imperfect. um, And, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, usually these are mechanism based, but we can also think about the timing of exercise and how that may interact with um, synaptic dysfunction and autism you know, the various Mm -hmm. autism mouse models, but mouse models that are really focused on either a, you know, synaptic receptor or um, nucleosome remodeling um, that is dysfunctional in, you know, autism. Can we influence those processes by introducing physical activity at certain time points? Because what we're finding is that there may be some time sensitivity to when we introduce exercise and long-term outcomes, at least for cognition. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting to think about this kind of intervention um, through not maybe like a pharmacological method Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. basic research, which um, is, 
you know, that's um doesn't happen all the time, I guess, in big basic research. So it's cool to kind of think about that one could be really important for a more immediate use for uh, clinical studies or just hit the clinic, I guess. Yep. Yep. That's the goal. That's the goal. Absolutely. That's that's amazing. Cool. So, I mean, how, um, right. There's so much we could cover because, but I guess just how has it been kind of now juggling, right? Um, being an attending neurologist at the same time of also then (laughs) starting up and maintaining your lab. Yeah, um, (laughs) right. Um, It's, I will not say that it's, um, you know, roses all the time, because I am (laughs) definitely very busy. Um, (laughs) um, I literally just came off of um, the inpatient neurology service at Chalk at Children's Hospital Orange County just last week. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, and so I will say that you know I'm the way that my career is structured right now is once a quarter I you know um, am on call for the hospital, so I work with residents and medical students, and we see hospitalized patients, um, and then. Um, In addition to that, every Monday morning, I have a neurology clinic um, and it's a general neurology clinic. So I see I can see any type of kind of neurologic condition that manifests in, you know, the pediatric population. Um, And so, you know, at times it can really feel like I'm using I'm compartmentalizing a lot and using very different parts of my brain to, you know, treat patients, also think about the lab and my students mm-hmm. in the lab and keeping our projects going. Um, and, you know, but what really, you know, is at the crux of, you know, moving both of these things forward. And for me, the motivation really comes from the promise of bridging these two things ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, um, our, we intend to be around for a while. I do. And, you know, I hope, I hope to see one day that that basic science work that we're doing will meet with the clinical um, application and the clinic work that I'm doing. And so I ultimately see these two things coming together and that's what kind of motivates me to do it right now, um, even though they seem really disparate. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's fun, but it, it can be very tiring too. So I will say that um, as a physician scientist and for anyone who's listening, who is kind of thinking about or is going down this career path, it's so important to have support systems in place and be at an institution where you have support from a clinical standpoint, support from a research standpoint, to be able to, um, you know, have the time to really think about your science, think about its application, um, and do do good work. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. <laughs> um, yeah. I won't take up too much more of your time, but I guess I kind of had two more questions, but, yes. um, you know, you had kind of uh, mentioned um, throughout talking about your kind of research path, some women uh, scientists yes. that seem to shape your career. I guess I'd love to hear more kind of um, yeah. about uh, women scientists that helped mentor you and like maybe how you kind of model um, based off of men- your mentoring experiences, now how you mentor your trainees. For sure. Um, oh my gosh. Um, uh, so the women scientists that I have been mentored by have been critical for my career, both in terms of mentorship and sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned Dr. Tally Barham, who um, uh, you know was a mentor during graduate school and also um, continues to um, uh, have a kind of relationship with me. And you know, it's it's great to see how mentorship, mentor mentee relationships evolve over time as your career evolves. And so it's so important to 
nurture and foster those relationships longitudinally. Even when you go someplace else, you don't talk to that mentor for a while. They always love to hear from you. And so um, <laughs> it's been fun to, it's been fun to kind of evolve and grow mentorship relationships as you grow in your career, the yeah. relationships change and grow. Um, and so that that's one really great relationship. And um, I will say that other mentors, Dr. Amelia Russo Neustadt, who um, I still, you know, keep in contact with as well. Um, I will say that as a, again, physician scientist, I've had some mentors through the K-12 award um, that were critical also for my career and uh, me kind of thinking about and defining the career I wanted to have for myself. I mean, these were more clinical research oriented folks, um, including um, Amy Brooks-Kyle um, and Dr. Heather Fullerton. Um, these are people, you know, Amy Brooks-Kyle, basic translational epilepsy researcher, um, who's a phenomenal role model as well. Dr. Heather Fullerton, who um, is a pediatric stroke specialist at UCSF, wonderful role model, also a mentor of mine. Um, so your mentors don't necessarily have to be doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, they, they don't have to be doing the same science. They don't have to um, even be doing, like whether you're doing clinical or basic or translational, anywhere in between. Um, if they are modeling a career that you uh, admire and you feel you can learn from, um, uh, you know, there's value there. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, I mean, it may be kind of cliche now, but, you know, um, having different types of mentors for different aspects of your life um, and also seeing, um, you know, what works for you and what doesn't work for you, um, what, you know, may work for them, may or may not work for you and vice versa, seeing how things are done differently across mentors is incredibly important. Um, also thinking about, you know, family planning and thinking about balance, quote unquote, if you want to use yeah. that term, but, um, you know, the balance that you strike daily, right? Um, you know, and the balance that allows you to move from a place of having energy to do good work. Um, identifying that in mentors, um, I think is important. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, people who are early on in their career can um, find what that quote unquote balance or that, you know, kind of uh, wellness in work and outside of work looks like. Yeah. So um, finding mentors who model that for you is so important. Yeah, I could not agree more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I feel like there's there's good scientists and then there's good scientists who are good people that then also have good balance and those are really hard to find. So it can be really nice yes. when you do find yes. them to to hold on and be able to you know Absolutely. look at what you can. <laughs> yeah, and you know as we're talking, like I can name so many other women. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I named a few, but um, there. I mean, there's so many more that um, yeah. influenced my career. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, yeah that's good to hear. Um, so I guess with our last question, as we yes. mentioned balance, um, what are some things that you like to do um, outside of the lab uh, to help, you know, maintain your balance? Yeah, um, right. So uh, it, it's evolved as I've kind of grown in my career when I was a resident, actually, and I found, you know, residency can be really stressful, really challenging. That was a really challenging time for me, um, just being kind of exhausted all the time. Um, I found, quote unquote, balance or <laughs> found something I love to do in performing salsa dancing. So I was part of a performance oh, wow. salsa dance team, and I found a team that was very like, 
amenable to my schedule so I could just show up to their practices whenever. And when you do like partner salsa or ballroom dance, when you're in the, the, um, I guess woman's role or the follower role, not necessarily uh-huh. a woman, but in the follower role, um, you really just follow. You just, you don't have to, you know, think too hard. <laughs> so I'm like, or at least for me, that's what it felt like. Like, oh, I could just follow and show up, and you know, it it, it feels intuitive to me. So I really love dance and movement, and I always have. And so during residency, I was part of this team that performed, um, which was a fun thing to do. I've always done. Um, you know, things related to movement to keep me balanced as well. So yoga and Pilates. And actually, when I was a graduate student, I started out doing um, yoga, like at the core power yoga um, studios and all that. And back, yeah, way back then, you know, it was pretty affordable because it was fairly new. And when you had a student ID, you could, you know, you could do a monthly membership and actually afford it on a graduate (laughs) student stipend. I don't know about now. Um, But um, but still, like I, I've maintained a yoga practice um, for some time, and um, I'm finally pursuing. I've been wanting to do teacher training for a long time, and this year I'm finally pursuing it. So wow, that's, that's so cool! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are all very inspiring uh, activities. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so yeah. much uh, for taking time to speak with me. Um, it was great interviewing you. Yeah, thank you so much, Rianne.